Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Solo Business with Blaine Bartlett. Um, I am your host, Blaine Bartlett, and folks, we got a treat today. I've uh, got a reprise guest uh, on the show today. Uh, this, this is a gentleman I've been hoping to get back for some time, and when uh, the email crossed my transom saying that he was available, I just jumped on it. So uh, Dan Hill is uh, my guest today, and Dan is the author of um, one of the most fascinating books I had the opportunity to read, uh, Emotionomics, um, and he's got a new reprised edition of that, Emotionomics 2.0, coming out. Um, but yeah, he's a fascinating uh, author, yeah, but more importantly, researcher. And what his research does, and he's got a company called Sensory Logic, but he uses facial coding to capture and quantify emotional responses. And so basically, what does your face tell? Yeah, you know, what does your face tell the world about what's going on inside you? Um, and I, I, I'm going to pull this quote directly from uh, your website, if I can, Dan, as by way of introduction here. Uh, the website says there are two currencies in life: dollars and emotions. For over 20 years now, Dan has specialized in the latter, often in terms of business applications, and often by analyzing facial expressions. And why the focus on faces? Answer is because the most valuable 25 square inches of visual territory on earth runs from the eyebrows to the mouth. So with that as kind of a preamble, I want to welcome Dan Hill uh, back to the show. Dan, it's good to have you here. Absolutely. My delight, Blaine. Looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the soul of business, you know, that's kind of the, the, the framing that I you know, positioned for this show. And I know I asked this question of you the last time you were on. But as we think about you know, the, the great resignation, as people call it, or what I call it, the great reclamation or the great reshuffling, you know, you know, there's a lot of different things here. Um, you're doing some research right now, and some of the stuff that you're actually in, involved with is this whole notion of employee engagement, employee placement. I mean, just kind of. So why don't we just start with that as part of a conversation about it, you know, the impact on business and ultimately the impact on quality of life, you know? What is some of your research indicating? Well, I think the most stunning statistic is that 16% of workers worldwide consider themselves to be fully engaged by the job. That is just terrible. It's a travesty. I mean, companies shouldn't want it. Their biggest expense is payroll. And you're going to allow all of that to be wasted because you don't manage to engage people, to bring them along, to allow their full self to be available at work. And then for the poor employees, I mean, you spend any time on LinkedIn, you see all these people involved in talent acquisition. That's because the talent is leaving all the time. Yeah. Um, what a shame. Uh, you know, that costs customers in terms of continuity and good customer service. It costs the company. It costs people's 
you know, the, the chaos in their lives as they change commutes and work schedules and try to have stability in their household in terms of income and career trajectory. There's so many ways in which that is wrong. And I just came across a killer statistic the other day. Apparently, the workplace culture is 10 times a stronger indicator of employee turnover than is compensation. So for those who think it's just the money, the money, the money, sure, there's the money, but there's also the emotion, the emotion, the emotion. Yeah, and emotion is where this uh, is, is really kind of organized around. Um, you know, one of the follow-on statistics around this, you know, Gen Z in particular, uh, as we're looking at, and millennials, um, will typically be in a job no more than about, you know, I think three, three years on average right now before they jump ship and go someplace else. Now, that's been kind of, you know, the, uh, in place since uh, the millennials enter, enter the workforce. This, this notion of culture as a business executive, as a business leader, as a manager, um, far too often I find that in the folks that I coach and work with, this, the culture is not something they pay particular attention to. It's just kind of, yeah, it's that white noise. It's kind of out there. I know I'm supposed to, you know, some culture, I'm supposed to say something. Yeah, I'm supposed to pay attention. How does it show up in your experience in a way that can actually be noticed and leveraged? Well, I'll tell you, I was at a major company for a while. I was the director of executive communications. The executives had one floor of the skyscraper to themselves. There was not a single regular employee other than secretaries on that floor. So to create physical isolation, first of all, is a very clear manifestation that we're not in this together. So one of the things I did to try to innovate is we arranged that the CEO would have a breakfast meeting once a month with about 10 to 12, you know, basically not managers, even below that level, common employees to mm -hmm. get direct unfiltered feedback of what in the world is going on. Uh, I would have another initiative I would suggest, which would be pretty revolutionary. What would happen if every time there was a new executive hire, you actually convened uh, like a town hall, and they had to essentially audition for the job that you had like two or three candidates. And you as the voting public decide which ones you think you believe are warm hearted, who are competent, who are going to take the company someplace, and you have to show your human people skills to get the job. Wouldn't that change the picture? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that I'm actually working with a fellow right now, senior executive in a uh, uh, pharma uh, organization. And that is exactly the gauntlet, quote, unquote, you know, that's his words for it, the gauntlet that he had to run through to get this job. Wow, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And I, I've, you know, I did a 360 with all of his direct reports and they love this guy. They absolutely love him. And the reason he got the job was because he, number one, was he came across as authentic. And yep. number two, people experienced him as approachable. Yeah. So, you know, the idea, and this is kind of, if you're convening a town hall with somebody that's typically been isolated, and I, you know, this showed up in your uh, blah, blah, blah book. Uh, yeah. We value innovation, but stay in your own lane. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> don't, don't dare cross over. Yeah. yeah we, what we need is more democratization in the workplace, quite honestly. I mean, you mentioned millennials and I'd even go further with Gen Z. Uh, mm -hmm. Since we last talked, I was, uh, with design students at the University of Cincinnati, which is one of the premier design schools. Yeah. And they spend a lot of time where the students are. It's like a five-year program because two years aren't on campus. They're embedded in companies and organizations. 
And what I was told by the professor who was guiding me around is he said, this is a really activist generation. You know, they want the company's values to actually mean something. They should not be the plaque in the lobby. Uh, you should live them, you should embody them, and you should kick out of the organization senior people who violate that code of values. Yes. You know, you, know, you mentioned this, the 16% uh, fully engaged. Yeah, this is consistent with Gallup's, you know, uh, obviously, yeah, they're, they're polling on an, on an annual basis. 84% roughly of uh, employees are disengaged in some way, shape, or form. And that has not, that number has not changed as far as I'm yeah, have been able to find you know, in about 23 years since Gallup's been conducting this uh, this survey. If it's not changing, what's missing? I think one thing that's really missing is the lack of EQ in the managers, mm -hmm. because the executives unfortunately kind of beg out and leave the human issues to the managers. I'd love that dynamic to change. It should change, but barring that, then it's going to fall to the managers. They're the sergeants of the army so to speak. And then they're obviously going to have the interactions. And, you know, if you look at the great resignation, sure, some people leave because they can get better pay, benefits, hours, someplace else. But the other two reasons is one, you know, the specter of mortality with COVID-19 made them think about their own mortality and the high stakes of do I find meaning in the job? And then that third one is they are leaving, you know, cultures they don't like, departments they don't like, and particularly, I would argue, managers they don't like. I came across a statistic once that said about 12% of managers are probably really competent in their job. Not so much the hard skills, the soft skills, the people skills, the soul of running the business. They're just not equipped for it. They don't respect it. And they need some help um, and probably a little bit of a push at times. You know, I came across some uh, statistics uh, yeah, McKinsey, you know, the, the consulting group, uh, sure. did a global poll uh, asking, you know, it was a self, uh, self assessment, but asking leaders, yeah, just how good do you think you are? I mean, yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the results now, this is a real generalized paraphrasing of the data that came in, but it was roughly about, you know, 92% of the leaders that were polled by their own you know, self assessment said they were inspiring and that they were good leaders. That same year, Gallup did a poll asking how do you find your leaders in your organization 84% 85% something like that said that they were fundamentally uninspiring and unmotivated <laughs> so that disconnect and where i'm going yeah. here is is with a question around authenticity uh cuz yeah these leaders that self assess they think that they're actually doing the right thing being the kind of leader that they are supposed to be but it's uh, based on data, it suggests that what they're doing is actually stepping into a facade and authenticity is miss missing. And, and the idea, you know, an old mentor of mine, a uh, long time ago, uh, Will Schutz, Dr. Will Schutz said to me that people connect through vulnerability. And then I yeah. went so far as to say that they disconnect through certainty. <laughs> I like that a lot, by the way. <laughs> Well, that, that idea of vulnerability is, is scary for business uh, executives. Yeah. What if they see me? What if they, you know, they, they, what if they get a sense that I don't know all the answers? I mean, how does this show up? You know, I'm going to kind of go back to you know, a large part of your body of work here. 
the authenticity, how is authenticity actually communicated, you know, non-verbally such that people in the you know, rank and file of an organization go, I get this person. I get this person. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll hang with them here. Yeah, well, no, I, that's, that's an excellent question. So, I mean, I would take that several directions. One is there are, you know, six core emotions. It's surprising how often in business anger is the only acceptable emotion. You know, yeah. I'm going to be in control of my destiny. I'm going to push you, shove you, direct you. Uh, you're not going to have autonomy, but I'm going to force my agenda on you. And it particularly comes true, unfortunately, from male leaders and managers who inflict their anger quite often on female or minority people. During the great resignation and the hybrid workplace, big surprise, the people who did not want to come into work as much were the fun ones who did not find it to be an inclusive culture. <laughs> which was shocked. Yeah. Shocked. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, you know, people of color, women, young people who were thinking workplace was going to be a better experience than it actually is. So I think that's one problem. Uh, another problem is happiness. Happiness is not a trivial emotion. I think executives believe that it is. It's actually nature's version of a welcome open for business sign. Mm -hmm. It is happiness as an emotion is inclusivity. It is allowing for innovation. It is allowing that I stumbled, you know, stubbed my toe, had a bad idea, but I'll come back with a better idea later on and I can laugh it off. I mean, one of the things that's bad with innovation is no one dares make a mistake. Yeah. Well, we all make mistakes. Return on mistake, ROM, is a great term. I didn't invent it, but I love it because we are going to make mistakes, but can you at least learn from them? Then your point about authenticity, that brings us to trust. And, you know, I, I think you're right that we should show some vulnerability. We should allow that we could be afraid and other emotions beside anger. But really specifically, trust, the opposite of trust is contempt. That I feel superior. I'm above you. I don't respect you. You're beneath me. All those leaders you cited who think they're superior in their skill sets. If they really you know, live that mantra and imagine they're infallible, then they're setting themselves up for being contemptuous of others. And emotions are contagious and they're going to invite contempt for them in turn, because surely they are actually vulnerable. Now, you, 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 this is an interesting thread here. Uh, you know, the opposite of trust is not distrust, it's contempt. Now, yes. that's most people don't think about it that way. And I've heard that. Actually, I think I read that in, in uh, uh, your first book <laughs> that I um, but you, know, you, you mentioned anger right at the beginning. Anger for me, in, in my experience, it's a secondary emotion that comes as a consequence of feeling out of control. Yes. Fear, so, and, fear and anger really go hand in glove. <laughs> hand in glove. Now, with trust, you know, in the leadership development work I do, you know, one of the questions I'm always, you know, you know, working with my clients on is how do you know what to do when you don't know what to do? That question almost always, I can't, well, I, it, it always has, it, it, it gets into, I don't trust myself to handle the consequence of yeah. fill in the blank. Trust seems to me to be fundamentally back on self. I, you know, do I trust myself enough to be vulnerable, to handle the consequences of vulnerability? If I don't, then I start you know, denigrating myself. I'm not, you know, so it becomes self-contempt. 
Is, is this a fair way of? Yeah, and 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 then and then you're and then you're trying to hide projected. Yeah, and then you're trying to hide in the workplace because you're afraid, but you don't want people to see you're afraid. And yet, I think fear can be really liberating because, on the face, fear and surprise are fellow travelers. They show very similarly. The yeah. eyes go wide, the mouth drops open. We have to be open to surprises. Some of them will be unpleasant, but we learn from surprises. If you look at our great presidents, for instance, take Thomas Jefferson, he indexes really high on openness to experience. Every historian will tell you that. In other words, he took in information, he took in ideas. If we can crowdsource, brainstorm, allow for our fellow infallibilities and our fallibilities, then then fear becomes actually an opportunity rather than, oh, my God, I'm afraid and I'm going to go hide and I'm going to maybe deflect into anger and I'll shut everyone down, including myself. That's great. <laughs> We're going to take a real quick break. I want to pick up on a thread here that you just you know, opened up the door to, perhaps, and it has to do with you know, Thomas Jefferson and the way that you've decoded a couple of things around others that are famous faces. Okay. Uh, and, and how this can be actually applied to current day reality that most of us are encountering with other people. So we're going to take a real quick break. Uh, we're talking to Dan Hill, got a new book out, uh, Emotionomics 2.0. This is uh, the second version of his groundbreaking uh, bestseller uh, that's now what, 15 years old? 15 years old. 15 years old. So we'll be right back, folks. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going on to that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52 week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business. That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link. And there you'll find the link to the leadership mastermind program. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this little commercial. And now back to our show. Welcome back. And Absolutely. <laughs> it's good. To, we're talking to uh, Dan Hill, like I mentioned before the break, and we're picking it back up right now. Um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, openness to new experience. How do you know that? <laughs> because I actually went through and I facially coded every president, uh, especially when you get to the older ones. It means you have to start looking at busts and portraits and so forth. Obviously, photography was not available. But then I took my facial coding of the presidents and I correlated it to effectiveness in office based on how presidential historians have scored them. And what I found <laughs> was that the most detrimental thing actually was sadness. 
that sadness as an emotion slows you down. And it also indicates that you are isolated. And a great leader needs not to be isolated. They need to connect with their own feelings and they need to connect with other people and other people's feelings. That's how they're a great leader. Okay, so this brings up an inevitable question, at least to my mind, an inevitable uh, question here. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, when you look at, you know, does, does sadness appear in either one of them? Yes, it appears quite a bit, actually, in Trump. Uh, anger is arguably his most notable emotion because the intensity of the anger that Trump shows. It's remarkable, um, really outside the norm. On the other hand, he also shows very large amounts of disgust and sadness. Mm. And uh, those two emotions make the anger percentage come down relative to other leaders. Uh, so first of all, Trump is a noted germophile, germaphobe. Germophobe, doesn't like yep. to shake people's hands and all of that, uh, doesn't smoke, which probably helps keep him alive, uh, doesn't drink and so forth. But he, he distances himself a great deal. Um, and so I think in some ways that plays into sadness because disgust is bad taste, bad smell. It means you're backing off from people and situations. Biden's problem is probably a little bit different. Uh, I uh, earlier championed the importance of emotion uh, in terms of happiness, but happiness does have a downside. It can also mean you're a little sloppy with the details that you think everything is gonna work out just fine. And every now and then I'll see someone say, how did Biden do in, in law school, for instance? Well, he did terribly in law school. Um, he yeah. does get along well with people, but I'm not sure he's the brightest porch light. And I'm not sure he always pays a lot of attention and attention to things and, and works through the details. Uh, so you have two presidents in a row who uh, maybe aren't best on the details um, and they have very different uh, personality in terms of anger and happiness and what role they play. Trump shows remarkably little happiness. You'd have to go back to Nixon probably to find a president who exhibited as little happiness as Trump. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, real world application, if I'm a leader in a business, well, yep. and it doesn't have to be the, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 100 or Fortune 50, but I, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I've got my you know, five person staff and yeah. How does, yeah, what, what are my people likely going to be responding to in me as I stand in front of them? And part of the question here has to do with uh, one way that I think about this is how do people feel about themselves when they're in my presence? Yes. So, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. I, I couldn't resist a couple of years ago here in the Twin Cities. Uh, there was an entrepreneur day just open to the general public where they were honing their pitches before they went on to, you know, their their select private audiences with equity funds and so forth. So I decided to drive down to downtown St. Paul and take a, take a watch for the day being a facial coder. Most of them, I wouldn't have put any money on them. Uh, <laughs> they, they just didn't have the confidence, you know, I, I you know, I, I said earlier, you'll make mistakes and that's fine, but you got to fundamentally believe in yourself mm -hmm. and, and not be afraid of your own shadow. And you are going to have to pitch customers. You got to obviously woo and keep your investors on board. You're going to have to find business allies. I was really struck by how many of them, and they were almost all guys, 
Um, and the, the, the usual mantra is, you know, guys supposedly don't feel fear. Well, that's completely not true. And uh, there was a lot of fear going around. And so I was a little underwhelmed by that. Yeah. If you go to his CEOs, one of the most important things, speaking of trust, is how do they handle a breach of trust? How do they mm. handle when there is a scandal? Now, there's an interesting study that came out since we last talked, or at least came to my attention. It turns out that if it's a organizational kind of functional error that was made, you're better off sending out a male spokesperson because our gender biases are such that we think if it's process and technology and engineering, the guy should be the one to address the problem. Mm -hmm. If it's cultural, we're going to have a bias that the woman will be a more credible spokesperson. But the real killer is if it, the crisis is big in scale, uh -huh. it's got to be the CEO because they are the only person who has a title that's equivalent to the damage done to the company's reputation. And they have to put themselves on the line. And what they fail to do, the study indicates, because they correlated to stock performance and even sales data post-scandal, was they had to have two things. One is they actually had to be emotionally active. They couldn't come on and just be dead-faced, yeah. you know, deadpanned, indifferent to the situation. And the second was there had to be some genuine remorse shown on the face. Mm. And what that means is typically when you're sad, there's a kind of a sag that goes on. The corners of the mouth sag, for instance. Yeah. Uh, you get a wrinkle uh, in the cheek. Uh, kind of a wince like Charlie Chaplin used to do in the old movies. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to feel it because people will, will feel you're feeling it and it will convey itself even if they're not trained facial coders. And so it does come back to authenticity and the admission and the felt sense that it was a mistake. And yes, we have to do better. But first, I got to own the fact that there was a mistake. And then I can credibly perhaps tell you about the solutions we're putting into place. That felt sense, that's, uh, I think that's a great way to describe that. Yeah, how do people feel about, and then fill in the blank, because uh, that emotions are triggered by, and they also, I think, uh, are predicates of meaning making. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, when the BP guy said, I just want my life back. Oh, I that. <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> Cla classic <laughs> moment. I mean, that didn't tell you there's any remorse. That just said he wanted to escape, get on his helicopter and get back to his yacht or mansion. Yeah. Um, that had nothing in it for the customer, nor for the employees. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just like, I, I'm out of here as fast as I can get back out of here. Um, complete classic error. That's, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, 15 years ago, you wrote uh, Emotionomics. And like I said, I mean, it's classic. It, it just, I mean, it, it, the ripple that that caused was enormous. And, and you got a lot of notoriety coming out of that. You were on a lot of shows and whatnot. And you, you, you actually captured just a boatload of really revelatory you know, information that you know, was, was profound. Uh, you've written a follow-on to that. What has happened in the intervening 15 years that you felt you needed to update? Sure. Well, I think the, the first thing is, you know, 15 years ago, the book would have been centered more on, you know, the, the boomers. Mm. And, and Gen okay. X, and we moved on to millennials and Gen Z. And I mentioned the activism that the Gen Z crowd has. What I didn't mention was that millennials who came into the workforce around the time of the Great Recession are not the same believers in capitalism and its efficacy 
as was true of boomers who by and large grew up in very secure households when America was cresting and there was less inequality. Mm-hmm. So for them, there's a fundamental doubt that this game has something in it for them. So that's why they're willing to move on because I'm trying to secure my contacts, improve my skill set, my talent, my knowledge, the points on my resume, because trust is evaporated in a lot of ways. So I think that was a huge factor. And in fact, that's why you had this movement now to things like, okay, yes, we had shareholder capitalism. Now we need stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people in the business circles, the CEOs started to admit in turn, okay, we've got to broaden our level of concern beyond the money to the people involved. Uh, I think that's real big. I think innovation, uh, I, I just took one of the chapters that was before kind of on products and so on and usage. And I said, no, it's innovation because the world is changing so fast and the CEOs know it. And they also know that their organizations aren't very good at it. Uh, you look at most surveys, like 84% of them will say innovation is my biggest concern. And then you ask them how much it's succeeding. They'll say, well, about 6% of us believe we actually have a good pace of innovation in my company. Uh, that was another factor. The third one is I changed the book and uh, expanded the employee section uh, from 15 years ago. So there's three chapters because before I had the you know, executives and their role in the employee experience and I had the managers. And I think that now we're in a place where it's a lot about collaboration and the teamwork. And so the, the managers are kind of curators of talent. Maybe they can be gurus and muses, but I don't know if they're as relevant uh, they've made themselves less relevant also yeah. in part. Um, and so a lot of it's what you're going to learn, how you're going to grow vis-a-vis your, your colleagues, your teammates. And so the, I thought that necessitated a chapter in its own right. That, you know, that, that, the peer group phenomena. You know, I saw something come across uh, one of my news feeds uh, today, actually, uh, from MIT um, that spoke about Gen Z in, in particular, in, 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 and in particular, those that had entered the workforce at or about the time that the pandemic, you know, kind of reared its head yeah. and, and things went south. Um, they don't have an experience of being in office. So they, what, what, what's interesting about uh, what was reported was the inflexibility around negotiating, or the, the, yeah, the inflexibility around negotiating flex hours, flexibility uh, hours uh, on, on the part of these, the, this cohort uh, is significant because they don't have that work experience of being in the office. Their entire work experience is out of the office, flexible hours, you know, kind of you know, being their own boss, mitigated with interactions with peers. Yep. That's, I mean, you talk about a sea change. And, and a lot of them don't want to come back because they don't, from, from tidbit stories, whatever that they've gathered, uh, the workplace setting isn't enriching for them. Right. So they're not necessarily a believer in it. So you're going to have to show some flexibility. The executives, well, it's worked just fine for them. They, they have nice, healthy paychecks and so forth. Yeah. So I think in a lot of cases, they've got a blind spot as to how it feels to others. The younger people just say, I want to be judged based on my performance and who cares what hours I get it done in. If I do the work well, I do it well, which kind of brings us to a point you said earlier about this turnover. Well, performance reviews, you know, probably always were kind of a a sad joke, but now with such rapid turnover, you're not going to get to the third annual review necessarily. 
what I would have loved a lot better, which I never had from any boss was some time that actually talked about, maybe here's some books you should read. Uh, here's a really interesting podcast or two you should be listening to, uh, thought leaders, things that inspired me, uh, some vulnerability of I made this mistake or I had this eureka moment in my own career. I, I never had anyone who did anything close to that in a performance no. review. No, never. I use my hands in the air. Yeah, yeah. It just, it just doesn't happen. And I think that's what they're looking for because the older people are going to have to earn their respect and prove that they're human and uh, show that they care about the other side and nurture them. That, that caring, it gets to be interesting because oftentimes that's predicated on, on two things as far as I can tell. One is you know, physical presence. You know, yeah, I can see you and that sort of thing. The other has to do with the language, the linguistic dynamic. And the idea there is language both reflects and creates an experience of reality. It, it reflects yeah. an internal reality, cultural reality, but it can also reinforce and or create that, that cultural reality. So, you know, psychogeography, if, if, if folks aren't you know, <laughs> yeah. present, how does, you know, how do I create that sense of intimacy? You know, I mean, and this is, uh, I think, an open question. I'm looking for a specific answer because I don't think there is a specific answer. I think it's a living question that gets experimented with. But the idea of language comes to play here uh, for me in my thinking about how, would I, how do I close that gap? Being mindful of my language patterns, the linguistic uh, um, tripwires <laughs> that are out there. Uh, we want innovation, but you know, stay in your lane. I mean, I mentioned that earlier, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those. I remember one point I, I had a, a new VP who came in and he was pretty sharp and probably sharper than the person before him, but he seemed struck all of us as being deeply inhuman. He was just a grab bag of really polished business cliches and, and the latest terminology. And we couldn't detect a pulse or a heart there what, whatsoever. <laughs> And not, none of us went for him. So, you know, I think you, you do have to put yourself out in a way that's the, the language, the examples are more humane, uh, more revealing of, of a person. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in one-to-one -one time, off time. Uh, if you're going to have a Zoom call, who's to say that the leader of the team shouldn't go around for five to 10 minutes in the half hour beforehand and have a little, little, bit of touching base and seeing where yeah. someone's at. Yeah. Uh, another idea I have, um, executive immersion excursions. Uh, I'm a former poet, so I can't resist a little bit of the- <laughs> Alliteration uh, list. Alliteration and rhyming going on there. But you know, I, I'm not sure that executives really understand where people are coming from and they are indeed isolated. What about experiences? Because if you ask me one of the things that's changed over the last 15 years, I think the world's come my way a lot of instances. I think EQ is recognized as more mm -hmm. important. Uh, I think experiences, which are inherently emotional, are more accepted. We have likes and all these things that we do, you know, in social media that are more social and emotional. But I think the executives come from a different generation. And uh, I think they actually need some serious time, immersive time with employees where they might not just that breakfast meeting I mentioned, Mm -hmm. They might actually go on a two or three day excursion to something. Yeah. Uh, let me give you an example. An executive who doesn't really get the fact that we are about to have the first multicultural generation, Gen Z, you know, become prevalent in the workplace over time here. What about they go to that anti-lynching museum down yeah. in Alabama or Mississippi? 
and they take that in with some of their employees. Yeah. Boy, would that go a long way, I suspect, to opening their own heart and getting some, some credibility, some street cred from people for doing something like that and devoting time to such an exercise and then talking about it and feeling about it. Because we've all found ways in life in which we felt excluded for whatever reason. And that could be a very rich conversation that could humanize. And I, I know the name of your soul show and I, I can't resist. I think it put more soul into yeah. those conversations than sometimes otherwise happen. Yeah. 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 Business is a, is a relational activity. Everything is, is, is and if the relationships are working well, you got a pretty good shot at being successful. Um, yeah. So that's not something that I find a lot of executives pay attention to or business leaders, actually. They, you know, relationships, they'll handle themselves. We've got work to do. Yeah, well, the-, the Got that backwards. Yeah, no, the former CEO of, of Best Buy, you know, had a, a good book and he said, you know, the, I think he was quoting a French philosopher or something who said the, the 18 inches from the head to the heart is a really big distance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and for a lot of CEOs, their training in business school back in the day was going to be entirely the head. Yep. And, uh, you know, Joe Lee said, I, I recognize I've got to make a sea change. Uh, but I think a lot of executives haven't. Uh, I put it right on the back cover of Emotionomics 2.0. Uh, an executive said, I don't do feelings. I leave them to Barry Manilow. Yeah. You Boy. can't, that can't be your attitude. That That is showing contempt that for is. others. Yep. And contempt for the importance of emotion. And I don't think as a leader, you're going to get there. You're not going to be as successful. Uh, you may not be successful at all if that's truly your attitude. Yeah, I couldn't. Boy, I could not agree with you more, Dan. The book is Emotionomics 2.0, Leveraging Emotions for Business Success, the revised edition. Um, where can people find out more about, number one, what you're up to, systems logic or sensory logic is, is probably the best place. But is there, are, are there other, you know, you've got a podcast. Uh, I do indeed have a podcast called Dan yeah. Hill's EQ Spotlight. Um, the book, by the way, I should mention, there is a guidebook that comes with it, but it's actually audio files because I wanted it to be live and interactive and bring the warmth that I think is possible through a conversation. Great. I just thought it was crazy to write a book about the importance of democratizing the workplace and the consumer space and then make it a monologue. Yeah. So I was interviewed <laughs> by two behavioral economists. And, I, you know, they talked, I, I threw them some pop quizzes because I wanted to demonstrate, even though they were knowledgeable in the field, we all have blind spots and they often got the, the, the pop quizzes wrong. Um, uh, but I thought that was liberating rather than embarrassing. I love it. We all don't know the answers to things. Well, we connect through vulnerability. We do. We do. There we we do. There we go. Dan Hill, uh, sensorylogic.com. Um, all of his books are up there as well as a wealth of other information. Uh, it's a pretty rich website. So Dan, I can't thank you enough. I've loved having you back on the show. I love what you're up to. Uh, you, you make a difference. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to do. And you make a difference too. So all of us together, just try to fight the good fight. Great. Well, folks, thank you for listening uh, to this episode. Uh, you can find out more about what I'm up to on my website, blamebartlett.com. Um, you know, like I keep saying to anybody that cares to listen, most of my IP is available for free up there. Uh, just nose around, see what you can find. Uh, I'm always putting new stuff up. And until next time, 
go out into your life and, and be a center of distribution, not a center of accumulation. Make a difference. And until next time, we'll have a good day. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.